This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. With more than 235 wineries, 65 restaurants, and some of the nation's most talented chefs, Taste Washington is the ultimate taste test. Learn more at tastewashington.org. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sing upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hey, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Eat Your Words, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So today is a cold day in Brooklyn, but I am really excited to be talking about a book that is celebrating the wonderful, vibrant flavors of the Caribbean. Um, just to let you know, I live in a neighborhood of Brooklyn that it is, um, has a lot of West Indies in the population. And so when I go to a local produce market, um, I see all kinds of roots, there's yams galore. There's a lot of, um, there's a few tropical fruits too. And um, I've always wanted a book that explored this uh, and that let me sort of have fun with some of these ingredients. But rather, you know, whether or not you're an enthusiast of Caribbean food or if you're a vegetarian, because this book is also vegetarian recipes, um, or you're just sort of a geek about uh, international cookbooks that really dive deep into the culture and tell the story of the people, because this book does an excellent job of doing that and explaining the history of the Caribbean and how the flavors, the foods came to be. Um, I hope you will enjoy this book as much as I did. Um, it is called Provisions, Provisions, The Roots of Caribbean Cooking. The two authors, sisters Michelle Rousseau and Mich- Suzanne Rousseau, are on the line right now from Jamaica. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Hey, how's the weather down there right now? Oh, we won't, we won't tease you. It's sunny and windy and glorious. Sunny and hot. Actually, <laughs> breezy. A beautiful, breezy, uh, perfect beach day. Oh, perfect. Well, I'm very jealous, and I hope to make it there um, sometime. But I hear that you guys are actually making it over to our not so, not that cold, but pretty gloomy <laughs> winter here in New York in just a couple days. Is that right? You guys are um, headed? Yeah, we're coming up um, this week, um, this coming week for two events. Uh, we have a, a talk at the 92nd Street Y that's going to be moderated by Kerry Diamond mm-hmm. um, of Cherry Bomb. And then we have a really great event at the Museum of Food and Drink in, in Williamsburg with Julia Tertian and Shannon Mustifer, who has, you know, is a mixologist, mixologist with great rum cocktails. Oh, my goodness. They are unavailable for both of their those events on their sites. And the um, event at, Mo, at MOFAD um, is called A Taste of Resilience. So we're going to be talking, I guess, more around um, 
the story of the woman who cooked the food um, that we tell in the book and sort of, you know, that's how, you know, food was a, a pathway to sort of independence and freedom for women of this, uh, certainly of the Caribbean region and many, many other parts of the world as well. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like a great event. Um, and I definitely yeah, want to talk. We're excited about it. Yeah. And that's so great. And Julia Tertian is just fabulous. And so is Carrie Diamond, a fellow host here at Heritage. So I'm really looking forward to, to checking that out. But um, you mentioned yes. the women of cooking. And um, I love how this book, you start out talking about how the stories of women who really were the bedrock of, of cuisine, um, informing the cuisine, the stories sort of got lost in history, um, and especially your family line. Um, you were discovering your great grandmother, and she sounded like such an amazing woman and pioneer businesswoman too. Um, tell me a little bit about the discovery process and 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 your great grandmother too. Mm-hmm. Well, you want you want me to take that one, or you want to go with that, Suze? Um, I mean, I can start, and Michelle can jump in, so it's, we don't overtalk. Um, we just so her name was Martha Matilda Briggs. Uh, she's my father's grandmother. Um, we 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 always knew, sort of growing up, that we had this well-known um, female ancestor who had developed this famous patty, because you know everybody knows Jamaican beef patties is what you guys would call them. We just call them patties mm-hmm. um, that were, you know, written about in sort of literature over the time as the sort of best and, and, and you know, most desirable patty and most expensive patty in Kingston, um, when patties as a sort of, as a mass-produced, you know, snack food or lunchtime food as it is now were not done. So she would have been at sort of, I think, at the forefront of creating that, that model. Um, and my father's brother, who was older than him, would talk about going down to her store after school and these hot piping patties being on the, on the, on the counter mm. in a tin and that she would call out, bring my grandson's patties. And so we always sort of heard it sort of in, I guess, in a more folklorish kind of way. Yeah, um, we really didn't know much about her, nor had we taken the time to explore that story. And we were doing our first cookbook, um, the, the first cookbook, which is called Potluck, Caribbean Potluck. And really began to trace this family lineage and, t- and try to put together a family tree and look at sort of how and who we were uh, as we told the story of our, our, our cuisine. And in, in doing so, began to really look at her life and sort of see that there was this connection in, for us with food long before we even understood <laughs> that we were even going to be in the food business, even throughout the many years that we had then been in the food business. And we began looking at it and had and discovered, you know, quite a bit about her in journals and in the newspapers. Michelle can speak to the research part. And, um, you know, you, you know her, the, the, the birth certificates of her children and all of these, all this information about her that, you know, I don't even think any of the family members had taken the time to explore. And it was really compelling and really beautiful and really heartbreaking at the same time because she left, she had been this woman that clearly defied really the odds to be mm-hmm. very successful in a time when certainly colored women were not, to own businesses, to be recognized, written about in the paper, and be known through all of her, you know, her food, really. And um, we just felt that there was much more in that story to explore and tell. And so Provisions was the opportunity to look at really her life as, um, the, as a sort of full circle moment of for us understanding our own life's work and our own journey and sort of completing a circle of women that we never even understood were part of this legacy that we have and also then connect that to those that have cooked and nurtured. And so that was 
you know, how I think she came to be the sort of, you know, at the forefront of the second book um, after the first one. Mm-hmm. I think Michelle can speak to the actual research and, you know, some of the discoveries and how and where we found them. Okay. Um, yeah, interestingly, I think, um, you know, you, you, we approach it from this, this, this more folkloric narrative of, of this great, you know, patty maker and, and, you know, with legendary pastries and so on. But what um, research revealed was that, you know, as a, a single mother in, in, you know, the early 1920s Jamaica, a black woman, um, she was never married to any of the fathers of the children. She, and she started in a, as, a, as a domestic Right, um, laundry. And that's, that's, I found mm-hmm. that out from finding the birth certificates of all the children, and then ended up, you know, at at almost fifty, owning her own standalone restaurant, wow. which was called the Royal Cafe. And um, uh, you know what we were able to trace in terms of her story was that she had this legacy of standing up for herself, mm-hmm. of fighting for a place, of her position, of being a very successful businesswoman, making a mark in an industry where there were very few women and certainly very few black business owners at that time. Um, and she ended probably in the in the, the late you know 1930s, having you know owning three residences on a very busy thoroughfare, a really well-known street, one of which housed her restaurant. And, um, you know, catering to and, and, and being the, the, the place to go for, you know, the, the Norman Washington Manley and, you know, all of these well-known businessmen and lawyers and attorneys. And, that was the place. And so it, it, it fascinated us that she was able to do this, but at the same time that the only reason we were we could find this story about her was because... She had um, she had this business legacy because on the other side of our family line, any of the women and all of their stories were kind of erased. You know, we never we yeah. were unable to find out anything about their heritage because once you got married, you know, you lost your maiden name and your identity became enmeshed in the identity of the family you married into. Hmm. And by being an independent single mother, I think you know, and also a businesswoman who stood up for herself and fought to to, to find a place through a traditional means, then, you know, we were able to find out about her through these traditional means and trace her name. Wow. And um, just to let everyone know, you, the both of you, through your business, your restaurants, Chow Bella, and um, the, the, um, your new restaurant, the Summer House at the Laguna, Laguana <laughs> Laguna Club, um, you are pretty famous restaurateurs in Jamaica and throughout with your first book. We've, we have definitely been in the business a long time. Yes. I don't know if we're famous, but we're, we're, we're certainly, um, well, you've we're, we're well known here. And I think, state dinners. you know, that was, yes, yeah, dinners and, and we've been doing it for 25 years. We started our first business in 1994, actually. Um, and, um, it's, been a long journey and, and I think in many in many turns of our journey we looked at you know how do we end up here and yeah. now I think a lot of that has been revealed to us that is amazing that you discovered this after having such uh, an illustrious career in food and doing some digging <laughs> well because we don't I, I don't think that we um it's so interesting because it's like we just did it we didn't think much about when we got into the business mm-hmm. why we were getting into the business or um you know, the connections to anything Why? else. Yeah, it felt right. And mm-hmm. it was that we had an opportunity. We were both back from university. I mean, we, we'd always been, 
you know, we came from a family of a lot of cooking and entertaining and dining and, you know, being taken to restaurants. But we had a mother who was a very good cook and who entertained and had dinner parties on a regular basis. And we were always around that. And our grandmothers, um, so Martha's daughter, Enid, our, our immediate grandmother, and her, my other grandmother, Mavis, um, who we call them Manga and Mama, were always these, you know, great cooks that, you know, provided us with delicious meals that were just, you know, the things that we remember about childhood. So we kind of always just cooked. We weren't, like, really thinking too hard about it. So, I mean, we don't, we see ourselves as more home cooks gone into restaurateurs. Yeah. I mean, I don't even look at myself as a chef, per se, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think we do a lot of other things. But it was almost like we always were cooking. We were always entertaining. We tried traveled a bit. We were always sort of doing dinner parties at university and coming home and doing them. And then it was like we had this opportunity. We were we had a, a, a boutique. We were doing we were had a little store, a fashion um, boutique. And my mother in a location where my mother had her her showroom, which was a sort of decorate decorators home showroom. And she was like, you know, I think a good a cafe would be good here, like a coffee shop. And the lady who was to do it, which was my father's aunt, kind of bailed out at the last minute, and it was already sort of set up. And she kind of said, why you guys just don't do it? You just do it. And <laughs> yeah. we were like, yeah, okay, why not? So we just did it. Wow. And I mean, we just did it, and we looked at it very much as, well, let's just do the food that we like to eat when we travel that mm. at the time in Jamaica was not available. And oh. it was youth, because we thought it would be easy. <laughs> we were like, oh, why not? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I had to figure it all out back ways. Uh-huh. Well, now, now food is your, your passion, your craft, and this is your second cookbook. Um, the first one, by the way, was named among NPR's best books of 2014. Um, this one that just came yeah. out in October um, is definitely, I mean, one of the best books I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and I'm not NPR. Oh, but, wow. Um, Thank you. Seriously. No, I mean, but getting back to, to Martha, it sounds like... Um, you know, it's fascinating that someone who you found a lot of news clippings about her restaurant, her patties that were so beloved. They were the best, really, for that flaky crust, the crispy crust that it was known for. Um, and it sounds like she was also an innovator. She created this tin griddle that the the um, the patties would sit inside and stay stay warm. That's pretty. It's pretty impressive. Um, she did so yeah, much. I mean, in, in terms of being an innovator, it was on, on multiple levels, like, you know, having this sort of furthering our research. What I realized speaking to aunts and, and family members and what have you is that there were numerous things that she did. You know, they started to, hmm. you know, because you now have a little bit of history and I now know the, the truth of, of, okay, I have the newspaper clipping to say the restaurant was opening this year. I can then ask very pointed questions when I speak to family members, which I couldn't do before uh -huh. because it was very generic. And what we found out from one aunt is that, you know, um, uh, she said that she had built all of these gazebos in the front garden and that people could come in and sit in the gazebo and press a button oh, that what? rang inside the building oh and then the waitress gosh. came out. They didn't have to go into the building to, to, to get their order taken. Right. Now, in, you know, 1950 or 1949 or whatever year that may have been, maybe late 1930s, that would have been very innovative. Yeah. So uh, she clearly was somebody who was a forward thinker. Mm -hmm. um, I think she, in many ways, maybe we've inherited this trait. I think she just took the tools that she had available to her and uh, um, made uh, a successful enterprise out of it. Yeah. And I think that there's a way in which, because she was not bound by the norms of, of polite society, because she was not 
of maybe the, the upper classes who had very traditional ways they had to live and exist because she was not married and therefore maybe was not controlled okay. by a partner. Mm-hmm. She was she was able to just fashion a life for herself yeah. um, that was purely of her own making. And I think that is what is one of the things that stands out about her character outside of her willingness to stand up for herself. But that stands out a lot about her character. The more we learn about her is that she just... She couldn't be knocked down, you know. She, mm-hmm. she just kept reinventing. She kept innovating. The sad part, which is the legacy part, is that the recipe doesn't exist today. So mm-hmm. despite all of that, you know, mm-hmm. no one, no one, she didn't create enough legacy that it could be carried forward, you know. That's pretty sad. And, um, you know, it's so fascinating to hear about her, her tremendous work and her, you know, pretty, uh, pretty legit fame during her time and her lifetime. But yet... Mm-hmm. During, you know, your lifetime, you had to do so much digging to find out about her. And, um, you know, oh, yeah, I wonder... Yes, exactly. And she did things by... That was, and that yeah. was, I think, a big part of why the, the story was so compelling and needed to be, I think, told. Um, and, and, and sort of her name brought to life. I think for us, one of the things that I think both of us feel as, you know, overwhelming um, gratitude for is when I've seen in, you know, whether it's the Chronicle or the New Yorker best books or, you know, the you know Atlantic, Atlantic or any of these amazing sort of lists we've made or reviews yeah. is her name being called yeah. for the world to see and recognize. Because I think for both of us, it was this sense of um, us carrying forward legacy, but us speaking and talking about those who had been not seen, not understood, not recognized. And so our work was really to give that recognition, even if it was part of our work to also tell stories about other women and Caribbean food and ingredients and present them in ways that had never to us really been ever done outside of this region. And so the food has very much been marginalized or misunderstood or, mm-hmm. you know, so pushed to the wayside and, and not seen as a, a cuisine that is, you know, as relevant or as um, interesting as other cuisines or as worthy of note or as peculiar uh, of any kind, but also just always relegated to a sideline. And so for us, it was a twofold sort of story of how do we, you know, tell her story and make her be a voice or, or a person of, rec- of, rec- of recognition because mm-hmm. she wasn't given it, but also how do we present um, the cuisine in a, in a way that is as authentic and as it is, but in a way that's both beautiful and true, mm-hmm. because the region as a whole has, I think, for the most part, not seen... It. I don't even think within the region we have been able to... Or the people of the region have been able to see what this the story of the, of the, of the food of this region is really about. And so it, it, it was like looking at, you know, to understand the food, you have to look at those who cooked it, but you have to look at how it manifested itself in this form, and it was these combined sort of legacies of those who came to settle here as colonizers, bringing their traditions and habits, those that were the slaves and their habits, and those have sort of continued to be, it's the same way the cuisine is eaten to this day, and it's the same way it's eaten around the region, and it's the same ingredients that present themselves in different ways in every island. And so, so it, the two things sort of became very much what our, our purpose was when we did the work. And I think what stood out a lot in the research when we went back and looked in, you know, these old journals and, and old cookbooks that we found was that the way people perceive Caribbean food today is not necessarily the way it was cooked or consumed then. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very simple, very artisanal, very clean, but in many ways, 
very sophisticated in, in terms of layers of flavor. So they, you know, you'd read, uh, you know, one cookbook said, for instance, that often avocado is eaten as breakfast. It's mashed table side with a squeeze of lime and a sprinkling of sugar. Or, Perfect. you know, and so that it would make, they would make references to, to, to consuming the food in, with such simplicity and purity that it was highly refined. Yes. So for us, what that meant was, okay, well, you know, how do we bring that narrative into, you know, the, the, the world of the, of the culinary world of today? How do we take yes. that inspiration for that level of, of simplicity and make modern dishes that people want to consume that is kind of mirrored off of the way that, that they would have often consumed them in the past? And I love every single recipe that you, that you share this, um, this sense of history and legacy, but also your sense of innovation, which I wonder if your great-grandmother would be very proud of to read today. Um, oh, we, we would be so thrilled if she was. I know. Um, I definitely, like, I usually bookmark pages of recipes when I'm looking through a book that I want to get go back to during an interview. And I've <laughs> bookmarked, like, throughout this book, like, 100 pages. So I definitely want to talk to you about some of your wonderful and extremely accessible and just delightfully vibrant recipes. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial break, though, and we'll be right back chatting more. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. A food and wine lover's wonderland, Taste Washington offers the most wine and food from one single place in one single place including samples from more than 35 wineries, 65 restaurants, 60 exhibitors, and some of the nation's most talented chefs. Each spring, attendees can drink and eat their heart out over four days brimming with specially curated events that highlight the best of Washington State. The result of a continued partnership between Visit Seattle and Washington State Wine Taste Washington is taking place March 28th to 31st, 2019. Mark your calendar for this year's lineup featuring the Red and White Party, Taste Washington on the Farm, the New Vintage, Seminars, the Grand Tasting, and Sunday Brunch. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back chatting more with Michelle and Suzanne Rousseau of Provisions, their latest cookbook, The Roots of Caribbean Cooking. Um, I'm looking at the Provisions Bowl recipe, which looks very modern and very adaptable. It's basically mashed Mm -hmm. provisions topped with anything you'd like. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you mean by provisions in this book. Just for those who Um, are like, oh, you mean like produce? 
I'll start on that. Um, mm-hmm. I think provisions in, in the Caribbean are, are really just the, the root vegetables and the ground provisions that, are, that we eat every day. Um, that we chose the title for that among, you know, a sort of another layered um, ver- um, aspect of the history, which is that under slavery, a part of the, the British slave code was that all slaves were given a plot of land um, in, in islands where they had available land. That would be like, and it was farmable, so like Jamaica and St. Lucia and maybe Trinidad and, and other places like that, um, St. Vincent perhaps. Um, they were allotted a plot of land called provision grounds where they were they had to farm their own provisions to sustain the diet and the and the meager sort of you know salted cod or or salted herring that they were given um, uh, the weekly diet and what that led to was that a part of the of the sustenance and the way they survived was that they had to farm one they got one day every fortnight to farm their own lands they could they could sell whatever they reaped from the land in markets which led to a sort of financial independence as well, or a sense of that they could trade, and they began trading with ships and, and with estates and, and, and so on, and with each other. And that was, I think, the basis on how these, these ingredients, these particular provisions, became such a big part of the diet here, mm-hmm. and they really are. So we call it food, or we call it ground provisions, or we call it root vegetables, or whatever. And it, it, it's or anything starchy and dense that has sort of a slow-burning carbohydrate tends to get lumped into that category. And I love how you encourage folks to mix them up. So yams, cassava, potato, sweet potato, you know, a mixture of them is always uh, not a bad idea. Or taro, um, or No, it's cocoa. always better. And mm-hmm. in fact, we do it a lot. Um, we've always done that in our recipes and in our work. So, you know, when we, when we cook, in, even in the restaurant or when we've served things, like so, for example, we will do a mash, we'll do a shepherd's pie, which is a very typical, obviously, British dish, but we will make, do it with sweet potato mash on the top or a mix of sweet potato and regular potato, which in Jamaica we call Irish potato, which is just, you know, potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, or we potato. will do like something like a gratin, which we would traditionally do with potato with yam, and it's delicious. Yes. Um, so it's something we've always practiced in the work we do, because I think for us it was always that we incorporate why look outside for inspiration? Why not cook the ingredients that we have here in more sophisticated ways and present them, you know, as, as, as elevated dishes? Absolutely. And I think the provisions that we have here have a very interesting sort of layer, mm-hmm. gritty, denser texture than your average potato or mm-hmm. spud. So what that does is that it just gives you a, a, it gives layers of flavor, but it gives layers of texture as well. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's they're combined all together in one mash, whether you keep them separate, whether you know some people smash and mash breadfruit, and but it's all it's all different, you know. It's it's endlessly adaptable and complex too. It sounds like, and I love that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and you've taken some of these ingredients and you've made better versions, it sounds like, of things like gnocchi. You have a sweet potato gnocchi that um, you say you've made lots of different types of gnocchi using different provisions, right? <laughs> and uh, fell mm-hmm. on this recipe as for its sweetness. And you have also some um, squash in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so we do. So with that, so Jamaican sweet potato is a little denser than, than what you guys would have as yam or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we found when we were creating the recipe was that we needed to add pumpkin to give a little lightness to it. And it is uh, very much uh, uh, 
um, a, a, a hit. It's actually on our restaurant menu, and it's it's an absolute hit. Like people are obsessed with that. It's so so good, uh, and it is hugely popular. Uh huh. I can definitely see why. I definitely want to make that one. Um, and uh, going back to the the provisions bowl, um, it sounds like this is really taking on the legacy of what folks would have eaten 300 years ago. Um, you know, whatever. Yes, and they actually still do eat. I think one of yeah. the things that was really important was to actually show the food as it's eaten. And I think um, on one, you know, Jamaica, the provisions, as we call them, and Jamaicans would call them food, uh, is eaten on a daily basis across the island by people of all walks of life still to this day. And so irrespective of, you know, the advent of... Um, is perspective of the advent of, um, you know, imported stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, sophisticated things like pasta or couscous or grains or whatever that we can now buy in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Most people still cook them on a daily basis at one of their meals, whether at breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And if you go to any sort of cook shop or restaurant in the island that is serving Jamaican food, they'll be on the menu. So um, it's very true and very authentic that not only are they consumed and they're they part of this rich legacy, but they are still eaten this way. I think for us, the challenge has always been that, you know, the food has not modernized, even though, you know, it's eaten the same way as it was 300 years ago. And so how do you start to reinterpret the cuisine so that an, a foreign audience can appreciate and enjoy it, as well as Jamaicans themselves or people in the region themselves can start to see that there are other ways that we can use the ingredients and present them. Right. And that definitely, that dish looks like something I would see in a trendy, fast, casual restaurant here focused on bowls sure. and healthy, you know, grain and veggie bowls and so forth. So you're definitely, you sure. definitely achieve that. the whole idea that. is that you, you, you know, food and recipes and cooking for us is really, you know, it's, it's a guide thing because, you know, these mm-hmm. words, these are traditions that are tactile. You know, they were handed down. You, 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 you worked and helped your grandmother in the kitchen, so you learned how to make the whatever cake, you know, but yeah. you, you, she didn't give you a recipe when you were five and say, oh, go and follow this recipe. Right. And so the <laughs> idea of food for us, especially if you start to read historical um, references to recipes and look at how they were written in the past, they were written as almost pointers, bullet points. It's like, you know, mix with sweet till this, add till so-and-so. Like, they didn't yeah. give exact direction. So, you know, just hey. having the, the, the openness of being able to add other things and layer stuff on and, you know, add some sauteed beef with, with blue cheese and mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of what we like about it, because that is then you can you, you take the inspiration and you make it yours. And that's what cooking really is about. You know, that's a creative process of cooking. Absolutely. And, and you have um, some wonderful sort of historical references to old recipes that you found from the 1800s and so forth throughout this book. But um, why did you decide to modernize a lot of the, the dishes here? Just um, why do you think it's important well, to bring it into a sort of modern context today? <clears throat> so, I mean, I'll speak to my, I think we may have different sort of thoughts around that. But I think for us, um, it felt like... Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, Martha Briggs's sort of legacy has not necessarily been sustained um, because it has not been able to move forward and be accessible to people of all walks of life or all ages or all types, it felt very much to us that, you know, we have this rich tradition of cooking and eating one way, but there has to be, you know, with the, with the advent, of life has changed. I think people's lifestyles have changed, and traditionally the food of the region is a long-cooking, slow-cooked, 
many hours. But it doesn't have to be eaten that way. So it was, all, it was to make it accessible to everyone outside of the region and in the region. But it was also to sort of present it in a way that can carry forward because the ingredients will always retain, um, they always be here. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways what has happened, particularly we feel for people who are no longer resident in the Caribbean, and I mean at large, I think there is a disconnect for people who are sort of generations away to third, fourth, fifth generations to the history and the legacy and the culture. And I think they've grown up in other parts of the world, North America, the UK, and don't have that legacy and that tradition of eating it in this way. Right. And yet, no doubt, it is women like yourselves who are carrying on this torch and sharing it. And I am going to bet that you will be remembered, um, that we won't have to go digging <laughs> through archives to find your story um, many years later. <laughs> so um, thanks to your contributions. Um, I, th- I got to thank you so much. It looks like we're about out of time, but obviously there's so much to talk to within your, um, the topics covered in your cookbook. So um, I hope everyone checks out 92nd Street Y and the MOFAD Museum of Food and Drink event. And um, thank- uh, 20th and the 21st, I think. They're back-to-back. One's back to on back. the 20th and the... I think New, the, the, the Y is the 20th and Museum of Food and Drink is the 21st. And you should come. We would love all to see right. you in person. Absolutely. I'm going to try to make it there. So, um, all right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Michelle and Suzanne. Um, I hope everyone gets their hands on provisions. And uh, thanks for at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>